This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, HPR1. I'm Bill Dorman, in for Catherine Cruz. The State Department of Health last week confirmed the presence of a new COVID strain in Hawaii, the XE subvariant. It's related to the BA1 and BA2 variants, which are themselves part of the Omicron variant. While XE is considered more transmissible than the dominant BA2, and the positivity rate of new cases is rising in this state, health officials are not calling for the return of any COVID restrictions. HBR Scott Kim spoke with Dr. Thomas Lee, an epidemiologist and co-chair of the Hawaii Pandemic Applied Modeling Group, HIPAM, about their COVID forecast. You know, as we're seeing the subsequent lineage of, of the Omicron, you know, the BA2 and then this new XE percolate, not, not just in our state, uh, but, but across the rest of the country and the world. So, you know, we're, we're expecting to see an uptick in cases. Um, but I think, once again, that, that comes with a lot of caveats, right? So cases at this point in and of themselves shouldn't be uh, a huge cause for concern, primarily because, uh, at least in Hawaii, the vast majority of our population um, has either uh, been vaccinated or and or boosted and also uh, contracted COVID or contracted COVID and recovered. And while reinfection is possible, you know, the, the rate of reinfection is, is not that high. And, and those that do get reinfected, you know, really don't suffer uh, in terms of vast numbers to uh, ICUs and hospitalizations. So, you know, what we're concerned about at this point is, you know, further impact or, or additional impact in the future to our, our emergency departments and, and our hospitalizations. And what we're seeing um, is that there's not a lot of big difference. There's not too many major differences between BA2 and this new XC strain uh, with regards to the uh, virology of it. Um, and if we were to extrapolate with what we know right now, um, the BA2 has been in Hawaii for at least, you know, four to five weeks based on DOH's uh, genotyping. And we haven't seen an uptick in, in, in ICUs. And in fact, I think a couple of days ago this week, uh, there was actually a day, it was like, it was the first day in, in, in forever where we had zero ICU cases due to COVID. So if you're, if you're putting together all the pieces, you know, I, I'm encouraged uh, that even though we are seeing an increase in cases for the, the long term, you know, for the impacts to our healthcare system, we're not going to see, um, at least from our projections in the short term, we're not projecting a, a huge uptick in ICU cases um, or just purely COVID hospitalizations. And is that based on the recent history with the BA2 variation, uh, which, like you said, has been here for several weeks? So the lag time in terms of hospitalizations would be you, you'd expect to be kicking in about now. So and we haven't really seen that huge surge in hospitalizations. Is that what sort of uh, helps comfort uh, you at this time regarding possibilities from the XE variant? Yeah, so, you know, comfort, you know, like, obviously, we, we would prefer not to see any ICUs or hospitalizations. But once again, I think the reality is this uh, COVID is really uh, transitioning to an endemic phase where it's just going to circulate in seasonality. And, you know, we have to protect the vulnerable populations. Um, but with regards to the timing and the lag, yeah, I mean, a couple of things we have to also remember is testing is much lower and also the frequency with which we uh, receive data, uh, you know, the 70 the average, the hospitalizations, uh, that, that the frequency of that information has also decreased. So we're not getting the granularity that we once got during the, 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 the height of the waves the past two years. So, you know, that also impacts the, the, the timeliness of our projections. But, you know, but, but all in all, you know, taking that into account and given the infectious nature the the fact that you know the cases are still probably an underestimate of what they are because of the the decrease in testing and people not reporting their at home test results, um, but the true measure, the lagging indicator of hospitalizations in ICUs, uh, is encouraging, um, and and I would expect for it to remain like that uh, with the XE variant unless something drastic happens. In terms of where we are right now, is there, I, I know there were concerns about, I think, uh, Maui earlier uh, with the Delta variant that we saw a lot of mm -hmm. hospitalizations there. So are all islands fairly um, 
fairly good right now as far as uh, hospitalization rates? Yeah, so I would say currently they're they're stable. But once again, you know, we look at it from a state perspective and and we do, uh, we also have county projections. So we're, you know, we fixed the bug in our code um, and we're going to be publishing the next day or two our our updated model. But lessons learned from the past two years is uh, what we typically, you know, the sense of, comfort uh, for our low numbers for the state doesn't typically doesn't necessarily translate during any one surge to all the counties given you know Maui Big Island um, Hawaii County and Kauai County they they tend to have or not tend they they do have much uh, smaller uh, medical capabilities in terms of ICU beds hospitalizations um, compared to Oahu County so uh, that Though, as a state, we're looking good, you know, it, we could have a random, you know, cluster, per se, in, a, in an elderly facility where, you know, just, you know, they're, they're higher risk, immunocompromised, that could land a bunch of them in the ICU. And that one incident could severely tax Maui or even uh, Hawaii Island just because of their limited capabilities. So once again, it, it, it's a matter, it, it's for those counties, it's always going to be more of a proactive, just making sure that personnel uh, you know, medical equipment and just keep keeping a pulse uh, because the, uh, of their limitations in uh, healthcare capacity. In terms of your modeling in the future, uh, getting back to what you were saying about the lack of granular data now, would you say that this uh, will make your models more of a big picture type of look at COVID rather than the type of very detailed modeling that was possible earlier in the pandemic when you were getting uh, much more up-to-date statistics? Yeah, so, you know, definitely we we have had to adjust. And so, you know, once again, modeling is never specific, but, you know, it it has its costs and benefits. So, you know, we, we are also shifting from you know the the daily case comes to now also looking at you know what are the uh, what are the what is the excess morbidity or mortality due to COVID. So you know now that the need for daily or weekly forecasts for cases, hospitalizations, ICUs uh, is not as immediate because of advances in what we know about COVID vaccinations, et cetera. We can. We are pivoting towards looking at other, as important questions in terms of okay. Now that we're not dealing with the immediate uh, target uh, of what's in front of us, let's try to start to identify all the other outcomes that have been created because of the pandemic, which are still important to uh, to communicate, to analyze, and and most importantly to to share with the community and the policymakers so that. We have a holistic perspective of, of the impacts of COVID, not, you know, and getting beyond just the cases, ICUs, hospitalizations. They're always going to be important. But now let's, let's fill in the rest of the gaps uh, because we have the time now to, to, to look, at a, look at the state of COVID and how it's impacted Hawaii from a holistic perspective. So your work will continue, essentially. Our, our work will continue. Um, the scope uh, will, will vary a little bit. But once again, you know, we're here to to inform and to serve the community policymakers and to just continue to educate. So, you know, uh, in our monthly meetings, for example, uh, we've pivoted from the some of the the hard times to so starting to look at the mental health impacts. You know, what what are the second the, the economic impacts, the the secondary and tertiary impacts of COVID? Because it's still that's all going to ultimately play a role in disease transmission, et cetera, in the future. So. Uh, we we have the ability to to continue to refine our models and refine it to to be Hawaii specific. In terms of modeling, say economic impact of COVID, how would you go about that? I'm I'm curious. Yeah, so so that that that's a field where you know we would you know defer to Yihiro. But when I went, well, sorry, when I uh, referred to economic impact, it was more so the social determinants of health. Right, we we recognize that there are huge disparities, health disparities as a result of someone's economic status and their ability to get a test, ability to get vaccinated. So starting to look more at uh, the, re- the relationships between someone's ability due to the economic status to uh, get vaccinated, to, do, to have excess morbidity, you know, morbidity, you know, are they more likely 
because they're you know in a lower socioeconomic strata to then um, seek uh, not seek out healthcare, not have access to healthcare, and then what does that mean for COVID? And then if they do get COVID, their ability to deal with you know long long COVID, et cetera. So once again, we're, we're starting to delve more into uh, the long-term impacts, and that inevitably deals with looking at um, beyond clinical measures and looking at social, public health. Um, and, and other uh, other factors that encompass someone's overall health. That was HBR Scott Kim speaking with Dr. Thomas Lee, epidemiologist and co-chair of the Hawaii Pandemic Applied Modeling Group, or HIPAM. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omoloka, olana, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Here's a question. What barks, has no eyelids, and can lose its tail at will? You guessed it, geckos. Geckos are the most abundant lizard group with nearly 2,000 species worldwide. They are known for their vocalizations. Most geckos chirp or bark to attract mates. Since geckos lack eyelids, they will lick their own eyeballs to clear them of dust. And anyone who's ever tried to catch a gecko in their home will be familiar with the ability to lose their tails as a self-defense mechanism to escape predators. The largest gecko on record is a now-extinct species in New Zealand with a length of nearly two feet. Hawaii is home to eight separate species of this lizard, none of which are native to Hawaii. For today's quiz, we want to know which of the following gecko species are not found in the islands. Your choices are the morning gecko, the tropical house gecko, the stump-toed gecko, or the giant day gecko. If you know the answer, call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. NareedHawaii.com. As you heard earlier on NPR, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russian forces have now started a new offensive in eastern Ukraine. Ukraine is more than 7,000 miles from Hawaii, but developments there are having an impact in the Asia-Pacific, in both the military and the diplomatic worlds. We get some perspective this morning from someone who has experience in both those worlds. David Stilwell was the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs from June 2019 through early last year. Prior to that, he was director of the China Strategic Focus Group at Indo-Pacific Command here on Oahu from 2017 to 2019. He spent 35 years in the Air Force, rising to the rank of Brigadier General. He was also defense attache in Beijing, capital of the People's Republic of China, the PRC. He originally entered the military as a linguist. He's fluent in Mandarin and Korean, also speaks some Japanese. I started off asking him why the invasion of Ukraine is so important to the Asia-Pacific. Ukraine, I think, shows you the interconnectedness between all of uh, the world, but definitely Asia, because this thing goes all the way from Europe and it extends all the way out here into the Pacific. Uh, and it goes right through the middle of, of Central Asia and Afghanistan and China, as you can tell. So this is a much harder problem. And what it points to in terms of solutions is we got to get away from this very regionalized approach to international problems. I came from the East Asia Pacific Bureau. I worked very hard to coordinate what I did with the South and Central Asia Bureau at 
State Department to, with some success. But nonetheless, the Middle East Bureau, the European Bureau, we never shared thoughts. We often worked at cross purposes. And finally, it is actually magnified in how defense draws those lines and how Central Command, Indo-Pacific Command, and European Command don't coordinate. And that idea that while parts of the U.S. government may not coordinate events spill and ooze over borders and past the conveniences of, of structures that we have set up. That's right. This is a efficient way of managing issues, but again, in a era of great power global competition, you know, my biggest criticism is the Central Command, which is based in Tampa, Florida, is not thinking about China. Central Command is thinking counterterror. One of the groups that has occasionally been floated as potentially a terrorist organization is the East Turkestan Independence Party or the East Turkestan Independent Movement, uh, Uyghurs, uh, who have been active in Afghanistan, Syria, and other places, leading some to want to name them as a terrorist organization. Well, that's what the PRC wants to do as well. And we all know that they have imprisoned unnecessarily or unlawfully one point. Five million or so Uyghurs. Uh, genocide has been uh, both uh, determined and supported by non-U.S. Uh, organizations. And so it would be really good if we could coordinate better between what we're doing in the Indo-Pacific Command, what they're doing in the Middle East, and the Central Command, and what Europe now is doing, because they are all very much connected. Think about Russia's activities in Georgia, you know, in the South, that links into its former adventure in Afghanistan. Very clear connection between European Command and Central Command. But as far as I can tell, there isn't a whole lot of coordination going on in there as well. Lots of discussion right now and observations, comparisons, Russia, Ukraine, China, Taiwan. And it's a little deceptive to draw a clear line. But what do you see within that that area? It's not helpful to make a direct connection, but I'll tell you, when we saw what was going on in Ukraine in 2014 after the Olympics and how easily the Russians walked into both Crimea and uh, eastern Ukraine, it did not bode well for Taiwan. Um, what's interesting on that, though, is in 2011 and 2013, Beijing swore its undying fealty and devotion to Ukrainian sovereignty and territorial integrity in the language of the strategic partnership between China and Ukraine. Why? Because they needed that aircraft carrier, the Liaoning, mm. the parts that go to their aircraft, all those things, a lot of that uh, military hardware comes out of Ukraine, not Russia. And so it seemed an easy uh, bet for the Chinese to commit entirely to Ukraine and its sovereignty and all that. That language was intended for Ukraine to support China's claims on Taiwan. There's a connection there. And now here we are in 2022, and that language is coming back to haunt the PRC as they are clearly not supporting Ukraine's sovereignty or territorial integrity. Instead, they're going in with their no-limits partnership with Russia. That undermines credibility, and credibility is directly related to legitimacy. And the PRC, as we've seen in the South China Sea, making claims that they would not militarize the islands and a bunch of other commitments, Hong Kong sovereignty or autonomy, et cetera, they don't put a lot of stock in credibility. And that's a major flaw. When it comes to Taiwan, Admiral John Aquilino, head of Indo-Pacific Command here, said Russia's invasion shows Asian nations must take seriously the possibility of a Chinese attack on Taiwan. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. I began that last statement about 2014, and now fast forward to today. Had the Russians walked into Ukraine like they did in 14 on this trip, that to me would have been a massive you know, red flag as to the need to support Taiwan even further. The concern that Beijing would see that as a green light to then execute its plan on Taiwan. Look how easy it is for a mm. power like that to walk in. Very proud in a, a lot of ways of how Ukraine has handled this. They are doing what they have to do to support their, their way of life. They are not going to put up with this. I think that told Beijing that Taiwan's going to take a very similar approach. And look at where Japan has been on mm. Taiwan. Japan's commitments to you know defending Taiwan and then standing up in support of Taiwan against uh, this sort of might-makes-right behavior has been a, a very reassuring and slightly surprising, but very welcome. 
You mentioned in terms of the idea of alliance, the Quad, formerly the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, the United States, Japan, Australia, India. Uh, before the invasion of Ukraine, the Quad appeared to be stepping up cooperation as a strategic counterweight to, to China. India now seems to be on a different page. How much of an issue is that split for U.S. strategy? I hesitate to comment too much on India because that's not my area of expertise, but I know a guy who knows a lot. That was my my deputy uh, back at State Department, a guy named Atul Keshap, who now runs the U.S.-India Business Council. And learning from Atul uh, and, and something we saw when I was in defense is India can be a fantastic partner, but India is going to go at its own pace. 1.4 billion people, uh, a very well-developed democracy. Uh, it doesn't behoove us to get in a hurry when we deal with India. India has, a, you know, historically a couple things that make it difficult to transition quickly. One, it's leadership of the non-aligned movement. Every time mm-hmm. you start pushing something, they just don't want to be seen as too closely aligned with the Russians. We're worried about the Chinese. We don't worry about that anymore, or the U.S. And so Americans are impatient. Americans want things to change right now, and India can't go at that pace, and we should be very uh, accepting of that. I use the example in military terms of how difficult it is for India to change. You can't just take a bunch of MiGs and Sukhoi fighters and then swap them out for a bunch of Lockheed Martin and Boeing stuff. It's really expensive to do. Uh, their pilots are all trained well, and they, they can operate this equipment very well. Kilo subs, you know, a lot of the systems they have are interoperable with Russian stuff. And and it's just going to take time for them to transition out those systems and then bring in things that are more interoperable and what, with Japan, Australia, and us. It doesn't happen overnight. One of the things that we're not good at as Americans is patience. And so we all of a sudden jump, rush to judgment and say, wow, the Indians are not on the team. The Indians are doing the best they can. And oh, by the way, they're getting cheap oil from Russia, and their economy is important to them as well. I hope they learn to wean themselves off of this, but that's, that's a fact. That's how it is. We should be more realistic in our approach to the relationship with India. You're heading to Europe. You're going to the NATO Defense College to be an instructor in what you call the China Indo-Pacific block of classes. So who's your audience and what are you going to tell them? Well, I hope Lithuania is there. I think they, they were there last time. Uh, I, I, I use the model of Lithuania as an example for similar to Australia. When the PRC comes in and starts bullying um, smaller countries, some countries roll over and take it. It's always passive-aggressive, and some countries just just say enough, and they stand up for themselves, and they just don't take it anymore. Lithuania was one of them. This is not new. It hasn't been going on a long time, but the interest in Asia and having folks like me come talk to them about Asia uh, is growing, and to me, that's a very positive sign. Um, we've seen the Brits, the French, the Germans, I believe those are the three, send warships through the South China Sea mm-hmm. to participate in uh, activities the British sent their newest, the Queen Elizabeth II carrier. The French have active military forces here in, in Tahiti, right, in the South Pacific. And it was, again, encouraging that the Germans saw that if things start going bad in the South China Sea or the Straits of Malacca or the Indian Ocean, it's going to directly affect their wel- welfare as well. They have an interest in peace and security in this region as well, and they are standing up and you said earlier that we're past the time of over-regionalization, but despite that, I'm still going to ask you that when it comes to the Indo-Pacific, what, if anything, is there that's not getting enough attention that's not in the consciousness of Americans to the point that it should be? I'll start with 2012 when they, we said the words rebalance. This is a decades-long problem, Bill. We, we love to say the words, but we, yet, we have yet to prioritize if you look at the latest national defense strategy, we actually say it. It's a priority. And the number one priority is the Indo-Pacific. The previous national security strategy said that, but people felt comfortable to ignore it. This has been going on since 2012, and we always find a reason to flex back to the Arabian Gulf, back to Europe. The two areas we haven't flexed back to is Indo-Pacific, which Hawaii is a, massive, a major part of, and uh, the Western Hemisphere, you know, Canada, Mexico, Central and South America. That's our backyard. And yet those have been the two lowest priority regions of the world for a lot of reasons, historical, cultural, and the rest. And so the shift here will hopefully bring with it uh, new priorities from back in D.C. I know Admiral Aquilino, Admiral Davidson, Admiral Harris before him were all adamant uh, with the folks back in D.C. that 
you're going to have to put – we say priority. We're going to have to do priority. And the, to date, the problem has been the world – the folks back in D.C. look at Asia as a 10-year problem. It's a long-term problem. We can get to it eventually. Ukraine, Taiwan, that you know, Solomon Islands, Australia, all these things are finally waking people up to, though. The problem is here now, and this isn't one you can come to late. You've got to get on in front of this. And uh, I'm hopeful, but I've been hopeful for 10 years. That's retired Air Force Brigadier General David Stilwell, who is U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs from June 2019 through early last year, and for two years before that, Director of the China Strategic Focus Group at Indo-Pacific Command here on Oahu. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Symphony Orchestra's Hapa Symphony Series, presenting singer and composer Robert Casimero in a performance featuring his music and more this Friday at Hawaii Theater. Tickets at myhso.org. No one wants to hear that they have cancer, especially when it's advanced. But what factors make someone more likely to hear that? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about how access to screening and genetics might just play a much larger role in the diagnosis of cancer than we thought. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. The Environmental Protection Agency says Maui's Ma'alaya Beach and Small Boat Harbor are impaired water bodies because of pollution. But there are some efforts underway to change that. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Paula Dobbins has been following that story, joins us to talk about it. Paula, good morning. You write that a big part of the story is now in front of the Maui County Council. Tell us about that. Yes. Um, right now, the uh, council will be looking at this measure. Um, they would add $9.5 million to the fiscal year 23 budget. Um, and with that money, if it's, if it's approved, the community would be building a um, state-of-the-art uh, wastewater treatment plant and retiring their injection wells um, that currently handle the waste of over 2,000 people. Um, They're problematic. They're known to leach into the uh, groundwater and then seep into the ocean. And the community has been really wanting to change the situation for a long time. You know, their reef is really deteriorated. The water quality isn't good. Um, And so they've been trying to get this money um, into the budget for a while now. And it looks like with um, Councilmember King's uh, support, um, this will be voted on, so we'll see what happens. The injection wells, there have been issues and uh, court case going all the way up to the Supreme Court in the Lahaina area, a technology that, and as you write in your story, that was cutting edge back in the mid-1970s, but today in a, in a very different situation, really. Yes. Uh, those injection wells were popular back in that era, Um, You know, the Clean Water Act had been passed in 1972, and so communities were just starting to really be forced to deal with their waste. Um, Prior to that, they would just pump it out into the ocean. Um, But as as, uh, Maui uh, and other parts of Hawaii, you know, became more developed and more population came in, um, they, they really needed to do something. So at the time, Injection wells were thought to be a great way to deal with it, but as we've learned um, over the years and through litigation, um, they're really not the best way to handle human waste. Now, you mentioned the the funding plan for this initially, uh, but if the county winds up owning and operating the new wastewater treatment plant, it also could be eligible for federal funding under recent legislation. Is that right? Yes, under the infrastructure bill, uh, Hawaii is in line to get uh, tens of millions of dollars for uh, various projects. And um, I'm told by the council member and also um, Congressman Kaheli's office that um, if the county owns the plant, um, the money from the feds could be used for its uh, construction and maintenance. But, um, you know, whether or not the mayor's office will go along with that is unknown. Um, 
I received an email from his spokesperson last week that basically said, you know, they've been working with the community of Malaya to try to resolve this, but uh, it, it indicated from his email that they're interested in the community owning the wastewater treatment. Um, the, you know, the way he described it was a privately owned system, um, and the community doesn't feel like a, it has the money nor the expertise to run its own wastewater treatment plant. They feel like, you know, this this area was developed um, by the county. You know, the, the zoning laws were changed around 1970 to make it from residential into a resort hotel community. Um, and yet the county didn't really do anything to handle the waste situation. And now, so many years later, um, that technology is just no longer functional. So their feeling is that the county should own this plant uh, and run it. So still a bit of an open question, though, even if the council does pass this about whether the mayor will sign it or or veto it. That's right. Um, And if if he does veto it, then the council would have to get six members to override his veto. And might get an indication on that by how what the vote is on the uh, on the upcoming issue itself. Correct. All right. We will keep an eye on that and be back to you. Thanks very much, Paula. Yeah, thank you. That was reporter Paula Dobbin with today's reality check on Maui's Ma'alaya Beach and Small Boat Harbor. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. The interviews and stories we hear on our program often strike a chord with you and sometimes several chords. That was the case with our live call-in show last week discussing Honolulu City Council's Bill 41, a short-term vacation rental measure that, among other steps, would lengthen the minimum stay requirement. Here are a few responses we received after our program and after the Honolulu City Council's final vote on the bill. Someone who didn't want to leave her name said yesterday's city council meeting was the largest miscarriage of justice and corruption I have ever seen. Questions were asked about enforcement timelines, punitive taxation, hotel favoritism, and arbitrary zoning map changes, but with no answers. Where is the balancing of property rights with city public good? Why was public opinion, 75% of which during today's yesterday's hearing opposed the bill, completely ignored. Here's a voicemail from a listener. There's an existing 30-day law in practice. There's going to be no difference in enforcing 90 days versus 30 days. They have the means to enforce it. They're already enforcing it on 30 days based on advertising online. All they need to do is to continue that enforcement. There's no explanation to move to 90 days. These are not properties owned by corporations or people on the mainland. These are properties owned by legal residents of Oahu, and they should be allowed to rent their property for the already legal time of 30 days in order to be able to afford to live in Hawaii. There needs to be significant looking at of the conflict of interest of the hotel industry over this bill, because that is who is truly benefiting from the bill. The few people inconvenienced in the neighborhoods by people actually illegally renting, meaning less than 30 days, is very minimal compared to the benefit that the entire hotel lobby would receive for changing this to 90 days, which is a completely unreasonable amount of time. Limiting a total of 90 days in one calendar year for people to rent residences, that could be a reasonable solution. But having it be a 90-day minimum is unreasonable and benefits only the hotel lobby. Thank you. And here's an email sent in by a listener named Dennis. Good morning, Bill. You hit the nail on the head that the problem is enforcement. Like many city laws, if they were enforced sometimes with vigor, sometimes with a more common sense attitude, we wouldn't need to have additional laws to enforce previous laws that were passed. In other words, we have laws upon laws, then additional laws and ordinances to buttress previous legislation 
due to lack of enforcement. Thus, the city and state continues to not really solve the problems. And one final email from Pat in Kapahulu. As a third-generation resident of the same property, I am absolutely in favor of more restrictive short-term vacation rental laws and their enforcement. Transient rentals in residential neighborhoods are disruptive, increasing activity, noise, traffic, and reducing on-street parking. Please don't force me to deal with this when I'm at home in my own neighborhood. There is a place for visitors, and that is at hotels and resort areas. Thanks again for sharing your thoughts with us. The Honolulu City Council, by the way, voted to pass Bill 41 last week, Wednesday, if you missed that. It now awaits Mayor Blanjardi's signature. If you want to share your thoughts or stories with us on this story or any other, call our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or send an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. The James Webb Space Telescope has reached another milestone in its journey to full deployment. Its instruments have been cooled to a chilly negative 447 degrees. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to tell you why in your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also things we can try and spot in our dark island skies. As usual, we are thrilled and grateful to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and we've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What is in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week's stargazers look out for Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn in our eastern skies before dawn. The moon this week will begin to wane, and we will see the return to nice dark skies by week's end. Perfect for stargazing. James Webb Space Telescope. Not something we can see, huh? Uh, but yet you've got some news on it. Yes, the JWST has reached yet another milestone in its long journey to full deployment. The Mid-Infrared Instrument, or MIRI for short, has been cooled to a mind-bendingly chilly negative 447 degrees, which is its optimum operating temperature. This is a huge step forward in obtaining the first mid-infrared images of JWST's targets. That doesn't seem so cold. That's about what you keep your beer at, right, Chris? <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the uh, serious uh, side of that? What's the temp all about? Well, the instruments that image in infrared light have to be extremely cold. The colder your detector is, the less thermal noise there is in the data that it collects. By being so cold, thermal noise generated by the instrument itself can be almost eliminated, making MIRI one of the most sensitive infrared detectors ever made. Is that what that big sunshade the thing's got to keep everything cool? Is that what that's about? Exactly, yeah. But the sunshade only provides passive cooling. In order to reach the extremely cold operating temperatures necessary for these instruments, a more active system is needed. And in this case, a cryogenic cooling system is on board the spacecraft to do the job. And MIRI ready to go? It is. Testing of the instrument is already underway, and we can expect great things from this box when it finally starts observing science targets, hopefully in the next few months. We'll be learning about it here on Stargazer with you, Christopher Phillips. Big mahalos. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. For today's quiz, we asked you to tell us which gecko species can not be found in the islands. We gave you four choices, the morning gecko, the tropical house gecko, the stump-toed gecko, or the giant day gecko. The giant day gecko looks a lot like its green and orange cousin, the gold dust day gecko, except that it can grow to be nearly a foot long. Several giant day geckos have been reported in Manoa on Oahu. The stump-toed gecko was likely one of the first geckos brought to the islands, particularly common along sandy beaches. The morning gecko population is all-female, reproduces through cloning. Uh, It was once common on all our islands, including Ni'ihau, 
but its population has been reduced due to competition with more aggressive species. And that leaves the tropical house gecko. That's the one that's not found in Hawaii. It's native to sub-Saharan and eastern Africa, but can also be found in the Americas as well as the Caribbean. That is today's quiz. I don't believe any winners. If you have a quiz, you can send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Sierra Club of Hawaii. For 50 years, working to help protect the island's water, air, and ecosystems, and committed to connecting people to the outdoors. Learn more about programs at sierraclubhawaii.org. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that choose to reinforce their brand with us. Mahalo to Mutual Publishing, Honolulu Spa and Wellness, and Aloha United Way. They believe, just as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. In the early 1990s, the Alvarez Ohana was building their home on the Big Island in the Wakaikaiiki community when eight-year-old Keone and his older brothers found skeletal remains in a nearby cave. HPR's Lillian Song sat down with Alvarez to learn how that moment became the beginning of a lifetime's journey into understanding and protecting Hawaiian cultural burial practices. I remember that day. Mom got home from work, and I told her what my brothers found. She went ahead and called the police because she wasn't too sure if, you know, it was a homicide or, or someone was put into the cave. So they came and they did the investigation, and they said that they were going to send out the State Historic Preservation Department to come out and you know, have an archaeologist take a look if it's ancient Hawaiian. Yeah. So that process happened in 1991. Growing up, you know, we're not the traditional Hawaiian family, you know, like speaking the Hawaiian language, dancing the hula, or doing all the traditional stuff. But my mom is part Hawaiian. Tanai, adopted by her grandmother, raised in that Hawaiian upbringing. Great-grandma actually took my mom through burials and things, so she taught her to respect these kind of things. So my mom taught me, as a Hawaiian, when you put the burials into the ground, all that love, all that aloha, all that respect, that person was a person who had a certain status in the community, represented someone's family. It's not like today that you can just hire somebody at the morgue and then they'll just take care of it. No, Hawaiian style was all hands-on. And only the closest people to that family member would partake. There was a protocol. There was kahunas involved. There was all that expert to ensure that that person, after when they get treated for their burial, but also their soul, their afterlife, would go to where it needs to go. Whichever amakua, akua, you know, that they believed in, that was their belief at that time. So anyways, from 1991 all up until 2001, we thought that in Hawaii that there are state laws and that there are protections on burials. So we thought everything was all documented and, you know, we didn't have to worry about it because in Hawaii we respect, you know, cultural things. And then in 2001, you notice a for sale sign being put up on the land. So it was quite a shock for you to learn that the burial cave that you guys have been stewarding for 10 years was not even on record. No reports were ever made to the authorities that this site even existed. For a very long time, you were the guardian in spirit, but not in the eyes of the law. Yeah. From that point of realizing that the site wasn't documented from the state, I needed to play catch up. And I had to find out about the area that we live in. I had to go and outreach for our kupuna, our community leaders. And then not only that, I needed to approach the State Historic Preservation Department, the Hawaii Island Burial Council, and OHA. All that needed to be legally documented, and I needed to get recognized as a descendant to the burial. And that's a difficult thing, because for many years, we don't have that position. My whole purpose was to ensure that our ancestors was going to be protected. And all my research allowed me to 
hold the position that I stand of saying, no, you're not going to desecrate this. No, you're not going to move them. No, you're not going to build upon them or near them. And I always knew that people who come from wherever they come from, they don't own our bones. They don't own our EV. You can own the land, but you will never have that connection. You will never have that relationship with our ancestors. And that's what kept me really true to my identity, true to who I am as a Hawaiian. And then also realizing, even though we're underneath the state of Hawaii, there are laws that protect our rights. But is it being upheld and is it being enforced? No, it's not. And that's, that's the problem right now. We have all the rights in Hawaii under our traditional and customary rights to protect our burials. You know, playing out in Hawaii's state constitution, Article 12, Section 7, states that we have our customary and traditional practices and our rights before anybody came here. Talking about before anybody came before 1778. That if we were here before then, we have rights. We have tenant rights. We have religious rights, we have customary rights, and it's all not being upheld today. And we have to really hire a lawyer, hire all these things, which is so obvious that we have, and we got to go through all this paperwork that we have, and then all the desecration that could happen or does happen. And emotionally and you know, mentally, that's a huge impact that does to a culture. And the repercussions of that, of when you desecrate something like that, you can't glue it back together. You know, this is something that once it's gone, once it's desecrated, once it's destroyed, it's gone forever. And you're deleting out or not giving the opportunity to the future generation to have a better understanding of who we are as humans, as humanity, to help the world in whatever way that our burial caves or our culture can contribute. You know, and for people to just go in there and desecrate something that is sacred, mm-hmm. it's like you're touching the Hawaiian's eyeballs. So it has always been a sensitive issue. And Keone, for you, how did you connect with people who knew about traditional cultural burial protocols? Who were you looking for to be your mentors? Well, the first mentors that I had, I give them a lot of respect and a lot of aloha because they showed that to me at that time. And as young as I was, they didn't treat me any less. I went to our community leaders in Pune. I went to my high school and I knew Hawaiian teachers and things like that. And then it slowly evolved, you know, to know the traditional burial method. That was such a sacred part that you got to be at a certain level in order for our kupuna, as old as they were. And many of them had passed away already. They shared with me their traditions that their family, they have done hands on in preparing the grandparents in the old traditional way. And the first thing that they always ask is, why do you want to know? And until I could genuinely know where I came from, who my great-great-grandparents, just to have the connection, you know, like my great-great-grandfather was Joseph Kahikolo, and he was from Moloka'i, and my great-grandmother was Ke Aloha Lapakukau'i from Kalapana. Until they understood that and the relationship of that and for me knowing who I am and wanting to know that and then also knowing my heart to save this burial cave that I had no knowledge of, but I want to do it. From them sharing their mana'o, sharing their knowledge that Ike with me, it allowed me to continue my research. You know, I'm a filmmaker. All the stories that they shared with me, I was able to document my journey, but also share the knowledge given to me with them on film or even the stories portrayed in my documentary coming out this year. And then also it allowed me to do resource online. I created a whole website so that people who are in a situation like mine, when they're seeing a desecration occurring, sometimes we don't know what to do because we were not told what to do. At least I've provided somewhat of a trail that people can go to as a resource in order to know about Hawaiian burials, know about burial practices. It's very emotionally and physically, it's a lot of, we call it in Kaumaha, it's a lot of sadness because we got to prove who we are and, and why are our burials important. And for us, these things 
has always been our culture to protect and malama and take care of our burial. You know, after getting the whole recognition, okay, you are recognized as a cultural descendant. Okay, you can have say, you know, I'm starting to put down things that culturally I would like to let the landowners know that I want to protect. So from 2006 to 2022, I was all just doing my research, just making sure that, you know, what were our burial practices and also even the beliefs of it, because all that plays an important part because it says, why are we doing things today? Why does Hawaiians react the way we do? And between that years, I had the opportunity to save the burial cave. You know, only the people who went through this kind of work, and I call it work because it took about 31 years from when we discovered it in 1991 to 2022, I'm still continuing. I'm going to keep doing this work until I die. Mm-hmm. It's just part of our kuleana, our responsibility. You know, I'm going to be continuing to share, continuing to protect. This is a gift, and I consider it a gift that was given to me because I learned so much about my culture. That was Keone Kealoha Alvarez, a Hawaiian filmmaker, artist, and author, talking with HPR's Lillian Song. Alvarez is putting the final touches on Kapu, a documentary about Hawaiian burials that will premiere later this year. We'll have photos and links on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. That is the program for today. Tomorrow, a very special show highlighting Olelo Hawaii. Want to know more about HPR's Hawaiian Word of the Day? We'll talk to the voice behind the popular long-running series, and that's only part of what you'll hear tomorrow. Do you have a story idea to share with us? You can call our talkback line at 808-792-8217. If you missed something and want to listen back to something you heard today, all of our shows are archived. You can find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Bill Dorman, in for Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.